Hello, welcome to How to Get Into Law School, a Seven Sage podcast. Join us weekly to walk through the entire law school admissions process from application to orientation. In this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different, and we're going to do a pseudo AMA with uh, questions that were provided by our friends over on the Law School Admissions subreddit. And also, this is actually going to be a two-part podcast because they were so generous as to provide a really great number of questions. We want to make sure that we get through all these subject areas. So as always, I'm Jake, and joining me are Brigida and Aaron. And hey, how are we doing today, guys? Doing great, Jake. Spectacular, yeah. yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. So let's jump on in. And, and for those who are not aware of all things related to Reddit and what have you, this particular channel of social media, Reddit is a social media channel where people can create threads devoted to certain topics. And the topics can be as broad as religion, politics, literature, or as narrow as perhaps I occasionally help my children through different video games through specific subreddits devoted to that specific game or that specific level of that specific game. That's how far we can drill down here. And a very useful and popular subreddit among our community is the Law School Admissions subreddit. Reddit. So we threw out a post to the subreddit to see if anyone has any questions for us. We, we got some really great questions. They kind of fall into different categories and some are a little more off the wall. So we'll, we'll kind of go through them one by one here. There were a number of questions, not surprisingly, given the students for fair admissions cases that came down from the Supreme Court this year. A lot of questions that had to do with that. So, for example, how are changes to affirmative action anticipated to affect the admissions process? Related, though perhaps not directly addressing the question, what do you believe caused Harvard Law School to change their prompts from this last year? And how do you believe we should approach these prompts? Step one. So, Brigida, let's just deal with that big one. What are the changes that you think? think SFFA, that those decisions are going to bring to the admissions process, both your thoughts as well as what we're seeing so far in actual application instructions. Yeah, I mean, just the biggest picture, I think it's caused a lot of, of concern and lack of clarity and maybe even fear on the part of admissions officers, law schools, general counsel's office. Like, how are we going to deal with this? We want to do the right thing, obviously, and comply with the order. But at the same time, you know, we want to continue to have diverse classes, or at least I believe most law schools will want to continue to have diverse classes. So that, so how do you navigate this moment of change to, to come up quickly with new policies and new ways and new approaches that, that do both? you know, have 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 both ends. And so I do think that Harvard Law School's prompt change is directly in re- in in relation to that. And yet, I don't think ultimately it ends up being all that different. It just takes out diversity, race, etc. But pretty much, and Aaron and, and Jake, I'd like to hear you, your views, pretty much, you know, the first one, statement of purpose is very similar to a personal statement. And statement of perspective is very, very similar to what could have been a diversity statement, although I will note that it is required. So Everyone has some perspective they can come up with, some experience that shaped them. So that's your opportunity. Yep. Back to that original question. One change is that admissions offices will no longer have access to seeing directly a student's racial information. There may be check boxes to check, but if schools do have that for data collection purposes for, for down the road, when they need to report information about their enrolling classes to the Department of Education the file readers won't be able to see that information. It's no longer a check the box, get considered in a different way type of situation, even if it ever was that for certain law schools. It really is going to be more, who are you? What's your background? How are you going to contribute to the conversation here at our law school? And so it's really going to kick it more to the written pieces and to the contextual information. And, and like you are saying, Brigitte, that's, that's kind of, I think, where we're seeing those prompts coming from. 
And on a completely different note, I mean, I if I could like chisel the Harvard Law statement of purpose prompt into a business card or into a tablet and just hand it to people when they ask, what should I write my personal statement about? Bam, yeah. <laughs> 21 <laughs> words. Here you go. Simple, yeah. clean, efficient, fantastic. It's the Harvard way. Just just to sort of emphasize that, like, I think those prompts are not, they are absolutely a response to the decision, but they don't really, they're not asking you for something different. They're really just clarifying what they wanted all along, right? Yeah. I mean, like, the, especially the statement of perspective, that's just an articulation of what makes a good diversity statement, you know? A good diversity statement is how, how is your background relevant, you know? Tell, tell us something interesting about your perspective and how it affects the way you think about law or relate to your community. And that's all they're asking. I guess, it, like Brigitte said, the operative difference is it's required and that's probably that's probably a matter of their general counsel saying this is the easiest way to protect themselves against you know this and that type of lawsuit and you can absolutely write about race if you want to but you can also write about lots of other things and to be fair diversity statements over the last x years seven eight years have gotten broader and broader anyway and a larger group of experiences or categories of experiences have been reflected in diversity statements so i think we were heading here and it basically just makes that all more clear yeah i think i think as far as that goes but i do think longer term there could be more changes because i do think there's going to be some nuances coming through maybe there'll be some more cases there's going to be a lot of learning a lot maybe even a little trial and error, which I, I'm guessing law schools don't really love that. But I think there's going to be a bit of it. There's also, you know, for schools that schools in states that already suppress this information, there are differences in, in practices, one of which is like they don't take notes on files while they review. I mean, I don't know if that's true across the board, but certainly we've heard it's not discoverable if it's if it doesn't exist. I don't know if that's legally allowed, Brigida, but you, you can advise us on that one. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, if you say something, it could still be. Anyway, yeah, let's let let's not go there. It's just it's I just feel sympathetic to admissions officers who are who are having to think about things that are not really relevant to the decisions they have to make and, you know, worry about what's going to happen to them if they do things in the wrong way. Per your note about the general counsel's office, Aaron, I, I think you can also just logically consider that Harvard was one of the main litigants or sorry, defendants of those Supreme Court cases. They are staffed by very well-trained lawyers up, down, left, right in the admissions office, in the law school, in the general counsel's office. They knew what decision was coming down the pipe. They've developed these questions specifically, believing that they were going to have to change things. Other schools perhaps were being optimistic or unsure of how the, the decision was going to come down. But yeah, I, I think Harvard had the most lead here. So they absolutely wrote these with a lot of thought and a lot of consideration and a lot of scrubbing so that they don't get you know dragged before the Supreme Court again. Yeah, just one question, because, you know, we talked about the fact that race could be redacted or just not show on the actual application, but they would still be collecting that in case or because up until now, the Department of Education has asked for that, right? Now, is there a real value to asking it of all applicants versus those who either are admitted or, yeah. or say yes? Or, or deposit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder yeah. if that's going to be a next phase. I know we don't know the answer to that yet. We'll have to watch to see what happens. But I do wonder. Yeah, as a guy who had to collect information prior to orientation, you know, yeah. it's a bit like pulling teeth on occasion. It actually, I mean, this is a complete aside, requiring incoming students to submit certain forms or certain standard information at various intervals through the summer serves a technical purpose of keeping those students engaged. Also, it provides you, the enrollment management officer, with a series of gates to determine who are your students who are most likely to, to not show up at orientation. 
So, I mean, to like to use an easy one, if you require three forms over the summer, one on, I don't know, like July 1, then July 15th, and then August 1st, and if a student hasn't submitted any of them, ding, 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 there's your flight risk. This could just be one more thing that schools try to collect. Additionally, there can sometimes be a disconnect between how the, the race categories that LSAC provided on their application versus the race categories that schools have for data collection purposes. So now you can just skip over that, that LSAC collection step. With that said, though, I'm of a mind that the best time to collect a lot of standardized information is on the application when it's a captive audience. I'm also of a mind, though, of not being sued. Exactly. So I try to live my life accordingly. You know, there are pluses and minuses to either. This could just be one more thing that you ask as far as standard incoming information. And, and then if a student doesn't provide that when they arrive at orientation, you just pull them off to the side and have them fill out that form right then on an iPad or a desktop prior to joining the rest of their cohort in the classroom. Now, quickly, you know, one thing we are also seeing, you know, how are things going to be different in this post-FFA world? We're also seeing more individualized prompts from different schools, so no longer generalized prompts. Yale and Duke, for example, have already released their optional prompts, which are new and also a bit different. So you may not, as an applicant, be able to use one statement as cleanly and easily for multiple schools' applications. So heads up. I tend to think the bigger ramification, you know, frankly, is going to be on, on scholarship because schools were providing more merit scholarship as recruitment inducement for students of color. So so if you want to have a viable community of students who are African-American or Hispanic or Asian-American or Native, you knew you were competing not only with your peers for those students, but the schools ranked far above you. So you had to be ready to be aggressive with scholarship. But now you aren't going to know that. And I think that one is probably the most flagrantly, the flagrant possibility for being sued going forward is if you can, if it can be shown through discovery, because this is definitely discoverable, that you were providing significantly higher scholarships to students with the same stats, but who you believe may be a student of color. I mean, the students for fair admissions are going to have a field day with that one. So I think we're going to see that shift. But that's not a shift today when we're recording this. It's probably going to be a shift come November or December when we that's going to be the first time we start seeing scholarship awards for this year's admits for the big schools, the T30s or so. But we'll see. We'll see. But I, I can see that one being a shift. And yet, I think a lot of essays will make clear people's background. And so they would know that mm -hmm. information. They may not know it for everybody, but they would know it for certain people who choose to disclose that in their essays. And if schools do do ask more socioeconomic background information, schools could always say, look, this isn't a race thing. This is a socioeconomic thing, which they could then point to the questions of the application and say, look, they said right here they attended a school where the graduation rate, a high school where the graduation rate was only 50% and less than a quarter of their friends went to four-year colleges. And that typically aligns with lower socioeconomic classes, blah, 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 blah. They can ask further questions to ascertain that information. We also had a number of questions about early decision. So for example, just provide general information about applying early decision when you're above the medians. I know that scholarships are less likely and the normal stuff thrown around the sub, referring to the subreddit, but anything you all might know would be great. And then from Responsible Belt 796 yes, please talk about early decision. And finally, Ben's toothbrush. So hopefully he's Ben and not the one using Ben's toothbrush. Does applying early, or it could be the toothbrush, option three, does applying early truly help admissions chances? And does applying earlier than later affect scholarship money as well? So, so we can go through early decision first and then maybe talk about timing of decisions, all that good stuff. 
So Brigitte, what's the usual pep talk you give to your your students about early decision pros and cons? Yeah. So, okay. Two main categories of issues. One is that you really should read the fine print on their website and in their materials because there are three kinds of ED schools. Those that automatically give aid, those that tell you right up front they're not giving you any aid if you if you get an ED. And then the ones who tell you they're going to throw you, they're going to let you in, let's say, ED, and then throw you over into the merit pile blind to the fact that you're already committed through ED. Again, who knows exactly whether you're going to get the same aid, but theoretically you could. So that's already important to know, right? So yeah, so that's important to know. And then if you're above median in both, well, sure, that's, I think you have a pretty good chance of getting in because early in the cycle, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the admissions folks. They've got an empty class. They've got not that many applications if you applied early and early decision, right? And so there, you know, if they see a really good candidate who's either above and both and is fully committed, great. They see a really good candidate who's above and one and pretty close in the other, also a really good candidate. So that's what I say. If you're if you're above and one and close in the other or above and both, you have a really good chance, you know, given that everything else looks good. People ask if I, if I apply with under median both ED, will that help me? And I don't think it will because what's in it for the school at that point? They're committing a spot to someone who has numbers that are not going to support either median. I don't think that makes sense. I don't disagree with that. The perspective I would offer is that, you know, in kind of tying in with your thoughts, schools use early decision as a way to identify those students who are going to attend once they are admitted. And I know this seems simplistic, but, you know, I, I knew in my former position that there were a number of students that were admitted in our first big wave in December who immediately were telling friends and family at Christmas, I'm going to Notre Dame Law School, but they wouldn't tell me that until the deposit deadline in April. So if, if you give them this avenue to apply early decision, they then are depositing in January. And the utility from the admissions office standpoint going forward is that you know who this cohort is. You know their stats, demographics. You used to know their demographics since we just talked about affirmative action, but you know their gender demographics. You know this, that, and the other. You know your scholarship outlay to those guys. You can build the rest of your class off of them. So as far as the students who are low on both stats go, you know at the end of the day you're going to admit a certain number of students who are in that range, that statistical range. My thought was always, hey, if this kid is lower statistically, but we're confident they can do the work, okay, so check that box. But also, if they have an amazing background, an amazing resume, and they're going to add significantly to the class, hey, they're here right now. Why waitlist them and, you know, push them down the road when we have this bird in the hand versus the two in the bush? But, but that tends to be the exception rather than the rule. I would throw that out there for folks. You know, does it help you a lot? No, it's not going to move you from the back of the pile to the front of the pile. But if you are that student who's lower statistically, but but has a strength on the resume side, yeah, you know, early decisions not going to hurt you by any stretch of the imagination either. So that could be something to consider. But related to that, the pep talk I usually give students is the first question you should be asking yourself is, is this my top choice school such that if they admit me, I will happily not only deposit, but happily withdraw all of my other applications to every other school? And then if yes, proceed to the financial question. Have you read the fine print and are you comfortable with their scholarship policy for early decision students. Because if you love the school, if they are one of those schools that point blank says, if you apply early decision, we will not give you any scholarship. We will not consider you for merit scholarship. That's a tough one to consider. Similarly, I don't like making potentially $100,000, $200,000 decisions blind to the actual dollar figures. But that's just me. And other people are different on that front. So you really, I encourage my students to think about both those questions and only if they're really confident about both of them to consider applying early decisions to that school. 
I tend to view it less as the strategic question, because then ultimately the student may really question, why should I apply to this school instead of that school early decision? And, and you can drive yourself crazy, I feel like, going down that road. I agree with all that. But I think my point about if you're under in both, are you wasting the ED or not wasting it? Because sure, there's some chance, right? But wouldn't, is there not a better school for you to use? Because you can only do ED once or at least at once at a time. There's that whole other strategy, right? Of how many EDs can I squeeze into one cycle? We definitely have folks who want to do that and that's fine. But I guess that's my point. Maybe there would be a better school unless for whatever set of reasons that really is the absolute number one place that you want to be, then sure, go ahead. I just think sometimes there's a better, there's a better place to put your, put your hopes and dreams. Oh, totally. And I, I think that that's where when I'm having that conversation with a student, I'm probably encouraging them to apply regular decision unless they would be willing to pay for that, that early decision dream school 100%. But if, if financial aid is going to be a big component, eh, then apply regular decision. That's okay. And see where those chips fall. But on the note of scholarship, I do want to address the comment, I know that scholarships are less likely. I, I mean, not from my perspective, I think most schools treat the early decision students fairly, not just because of ethics, but because they know, they, the admissions officers know, there's just way too much information out there. So if they really lowball a student, the student can find out about that within 10 minutes on Reddit or on lawschooldata.org. So if everyone else who had a 172 and a 4.0 GPA got an award of 30,000 a year and they gave the early decision student 5,000 a year, the kid's going to find out about it. And they're going to be ticked off not just in the near term, but for the next three years and as an alum. And I don't think admissions officers want to go down that road. I don't think they're trying to use early decision to, to lowball students. And I, I haven't seen enough stats to back that up. If someone gets an ED, they're so freaking thrilled. I just, I don't even know if I ever know what they get on their scholarship, right? I mean, Aaron, do they even tell us at that point? I, we should be getting that. The thing I want to say about ED is that, like, we often work with students who are, like, very pessimistic about their own chances. And we know from long experience that there's actually a lot to love about their application. And sometimes I want to say, like, don't apply, <laughs> don't apply ED because you're going to get in and then you're going to say, shoot, like, what would my other offers have looked like? You know, I remember this guy a couple years ago. I think it was you and I worked with this with him, Brigida. He was an accountant and just like a really lovely person. Like, if you get that guy into an interview, you would want to admit him, you know. And he was from Chicago and he was pretty focused on Northwestern because he thought that was the kind of higher percentage move for him given his GPA and stuff. But like we we knew he had a good he had a good LSAT. He had really impressive work experience. He probably had a great shot at other schools, too. And he was kind of like he was initially elated when he got into Northwestern. And then he kind of thought, I think he spent some time sort of, you know, reconsidering the decision. I think he's very happy now. But, you know, it's just something to something to think about. I was thinking about the other one who was going to go with another very lovely school that gives ED scholarships. He was going to go there. And then we talked about it. Not didn't, but we presented the idea of not doing that and just going, you know, T14 big. And he, he ended up at Harvard. Do you remember that guy? Right. That right. was that right. was good, yeah, too. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not for everyone. Don't don't do ED if you're not going to be happy. And if you're going to start second guessing yourself, even if you do get money, could I have gone somewhere else? It's always been my dream to go to ABC. Well, then just go for it, because it's not like undergrad. Some people come to us with that undergrad experience where they fill up half the class on ED. We don't have that here in law school. It's still a relatively small group. Now, in 10 years, could that be different? Maybe, maybe not. But yeah, that's, that's where I go. 
One thing on Ben's toothbrush, I actually read his question, or I guess it's a he, question a little differently, not so much early decision, but early in the cycle. Correct. The second question to that, yep. Yeah. I usually say yes, it does really help for somewhat similar reasons that I said about ED. You know, it's the beginning of the cycle. Everyone's fresh. Everyone's got a class to fill. There's not that many applicants. And if you're a really good applicant, you might get grabbed early. Now, if you waltz in in January or February with super high scores above median of both, you're going to get somehow, you know, they're going to find you in, in that pile of 4,000 applicants, and you might still get in at the same rate that you would have before. But anyone who's got anything, you know, a little bit wobbly or maybe a splitter, I think there's some real evidence that shows you just have a better chance getting in in October rather than getting in if you apply in February. It depends on the year. Like, you know, 2020, everyone was thinking like, well, the, you know, COVID's going to tank law school applications because the economy's bad. Instead, applications were through the roof. So like everyone I worked with who applied in September had a normal cycle. And everyone who applied after that had results that were maybe, you know, sometimes a lot worse than we would have expected the year before or even the year after. Totally. And I think we're, we need to speak about that differential, kind of like Brigitte, like you were hinting at. There's not really going to be a difference between applying in September versus October because that's so early in the admissions process that admissions officers are still catching their breath from enrolling this past class. They are traveling to law fairs. They're doing their reporting to the ABA, which is due by October 5th. They're doing all that stuff. They don't really stop doing all that and start evaluating applications until the beginning to middle of November. That's really when those wheels start turning more seriously. So applying on September 1st, October 1st, that's a moot point. It's really the differential between like October 15th and December 15th, or certainly December 15th and January 15th and or February 15th. That's where you tend to see more of that divide. And related to this most recent admissions year, everyone was expecting apps to go down this past year based on LSAT test taking numbers from the year before. And that was true through the beginning of November. And then apps all of a sudden started to catch up on a national level. So last year, it certainly seemed like the students I worked with who submitted those apps in September, October had some different decisions than co-equal applicants who applied in November and even early December. And that's not to scare anyone listening to this podcast, but just to say, if you have your ducks in a row and are ready to submit an application on October 15th, go for it. If you can get some substantial work done on your documents now, rather than waiting until your fall break, that's also not a bad idea. Speaking of working on documents, so we also got a question about chat GPT AI. So from Swarley1999, can schools actually determine if we use AI to assist with our essays? If you used AI for a rough draft and edited it a significant amount, will schools be able to tell and will this hurt applicants who use AI? What do we think? <laughs> I got a lot of thoughts about AI. I, I, I think like... <laughs> <laughs> Pro con. Brigitte's a, Brigitte's a lawyer, and she'll address the ethical problem here. It's certainly true that the essays have to be your own work, and if they are the work of a robot, that's a problem from that perspective. I think as a writer, I think about like, well, if you used AI for a rough draft and edited a significant amount, well, how do you? Why would you use AI for a rough draft if you are a good enough writer that you can see what's wrong with it and edit it? You know, like you're just you're imposing a weird task on yourself that crosses an ethical line to begin with but that also just is not in any way likely to result in a better essay. And so can they determine if AI assists with their essays? If you, I mean, I, I, it's a very complex question. I think th there are algorithms that will, that can look at documents and look at like frequency of certain word use, stuff like that, and give you like a percentage chance that it was composed by a robot. If schools have your LSAT writing also, 
then they can maybe compare those. And if there's variance between them, according to those like statistical metrics, then they can say more certainly that you've used AI. If you're editing it so much that it no longer looks like it was written by a robot, I just come back to this question of why, why would you use a robot to write the rough draft to begin with? You know, what are you getting out of that? Yeah, and I always go back to either law or policy instructions, for example. If the instructions say don't do it, don't do it, because you are applying to law school and we do have ethical standards. And if you're already from the very outset trying to find a way around things, it, that's not a really great sign. I think things might change in the decades that come. What might be a no now could be a yes later, or there might, but you know, just I, I, I don't know if this happened for the written word, but for pictures, I think tech companies and AI companies agreed to put a watermark on it or something that showed it was AI generated for a visual. And maybe they need to do something like that for the written word too, that, you know, and I don't know, I'm sure there's going to be ways to track things in the future that we don't know of now. But I would say, just don't do it. This is your chance to write your story. Get advice. I mean, sure, we provide advice. So it's not like you can't get advice. But you just don't want somebody else doing your first draft. You want somebody to help you, maybe pull the best out of you, fine. But anyway, for me, it's a no. What I would offer on the front of, can schools actually determine if we use AI? I think the issue is consistency. And, and so this is not to give anyone a blueprint about what to do by all means. But it was always a red flag for me when reviewing a student's application if the various documents just didn't, they, they felt different. And it's difficult to put your finger on it. And Aaron, you, you mentioned, you know, software that can measure usage of words and, and variances and what have you. The human brain is also attuned to that. So we are consciously and subconsciously attuned to patterns. And when reading a personal statement, if I then flip over to the school specific statement, and it just feels like it was written by a different person, that's a red flag. And, you know, the most obvious example of this is the super polished personal statement, the super polished diversity statement. And then I would get to the school specific statement, and it was in a different font. And it was in a different, you know, it had a different spacing to it. It was single spaced instead of double spaced. It was very sloppy. Either you only spent five minutes on my, my specific school's document, or these other documents were written by someone else and were polished by someone else, and this is your own piece. And neither of those options are great. So, I mean, if you're going in, I guess you got to go all in to avoid detection. Though once you're all in, man, like, oh, it's... Uh, once you create that web of lies, right, it's it's hard to, to walk it back. So we caution you not to. How, how about we just let this be a delightful theoretical and a possible, I don't know, possible subject for Aaron's next book. And we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I have a friend who's been trying to get ChatGPT to write a novel about ChatGPT itself taking over the world in some interesting way. And he reports that it, it won't do it. It's being strangely diffident and obstructive in the whole project. So. Don't give the AI any ideas. Okay, guys? <laughs> Just stop it. Speaking of giving people ideas, let's talk about U.S. News because they had a whole lot of ideas of how to, how to change things this year. So we received a number of questions that basically center around how U.S. News changed their formula this past year and asking if we think that schools will change their strategies for enrolling, admitting and enrolling students based on the change in methodology. So actually, just for the first time, listeners, how about we just kind of walk through how U.S. News changed a little bit this year? Because I think we take it for granted that everyone knows because we <laughs> we lived through it. But those first time law applicants may not be aware of what happened. So the Cliff Notes version here is that beginning in November 22, a series of schools beginning with Yale, so the biggest fish out there, 
started announcing that they would no longer provide proprietary information to U.S. News. So U.S. News was relying not only on publicly available information, such as through reporting to the American Bar Association, but also on internal information that schools had to research and then submit to U.S. News. For example, how many volumes are in your library? Okay, that's not something the ABA asks for. That's something U.S. News would ask for. And Yale and various schools said, look, this is ridiculous. Various lines of argument were U.S. News is measuring things that aren't really aligned with our missions. This ultimately is an arbitrary process that may be misleading to students. Although I have to admit, my favorite rationale was from the dean of Michigan law, who said the amount of staff time we spend compiling this information as a state school is just absurd, to which every law school administrator said, amen, (laughs) preach. So U.S. News then pivoted to say that they would only use publicly available information through the American Bar Association reports, which led then to a pretty drastic shift in some rankings. So, for example, historically, Harvard is either number two or three. And if they're two, they're tied with Stanford. They dropped, quote unquote, to five. Is that right? Got that number right? I think so. Duke, meanwhile, usually historically is like eh, 10, maybe nine, maybe 11. They jumped up to a tie at five. Okay, so that's a bit of a change. And then looking a little further down, Wash used typically like 16, they moved to like 20. BU and Notre Dame are usually like 20 to 22, and they moved to like 27 to 30. And that's before we even get much further down. And the drastic change to the methodology was that U.S. News heavily discounted the use of, or LSAT and GPA medians. So those were historically about 20 to 23 percent of the formula. They're now like 10 percent of the formula combined. Meanwhile, they significantly increased the weighting for outcomes, employment. So that, that's now at like 38% of the weighting, I think. So in a nutshell, this would seem to discount stats and increase, you know, employability down the road. Did I get all the major points there, Aaron and Brigitte? Missing anything fun? Yeah, that, that all sounds good. I think so, yeah. That makes it seem so bloodless and, and undramatic where <laughs> <laughs> we, we were living on every twist and turn, November, December, January. Okay, so back to the question. Do we think that those changes to the methodology will actually affect what we see from admissions offices this year? I hope so. <laughs> I hope that the really impressive person who has like a 3-3 three, three because, you know, something bad happened to them freshman year doesn't is not penalized quite as significantly as they were in the past, you know? Yeah. And, and I think, I, you know, I do think there's this balance of super high scores versus employability. And, you know, obviously lots of people have both, so it's not either or. But it, I, I do think maybe career services might have a little heavier of a, a hand or at least pressure admissions offices to, to look at all of these things. There's a downside, of course, too, right? There are certain careers that are, that are maybe less traditional law or law adjacent, let's say, but you still need a law degree or you still can use a law degree. And But there's not as much of a track. And well, law schools, and I'm saying, this obviously very defensively since my career was one of those before, you know, the international human rights is it's hard and, and there's it's not as much of a track and maybe you take a little longer to find a job, but those are great jobs and you, you know, God forbid you actually contribute to society in some way. So you, you don't want schools to, to use that and say, you know, and kind of pressure people to do the straight and narrow if they are not straight and narrow law people, right? So there's some downside there, but employability is different from are you employed at a law firm by May 15th, you know? 
or September 1st or whatever, the day after the bar. So yeah, so I worry about that a little bit, but probably most of this is, is for the good, right? You do want them to step up their career services, make sure that enough attention is paid to a wide range of kinds of careers and that people are not just placed, but placed somewhere they want to be placed. Mm-hmm. Or not even placed, but you know, that you just increase your prep for the students and you also increase your recruitment efforts to various law firms, agencies, etc. So what, what I'll throw out there is that I think that, I don't think, I know that law schools and deans and high-level administrators are going to be very attuned to these changes. Absolutely. I think that long-term, they will care about, and they have cared about employability. So 10 years ago, when we had our last big shift in law school admissions with a, a great decline, Decline in applications, employability was at the top of the radar for schools because their stats took a hit. As they were dipping down statistically to enroll classes, they wanted to make sure these students were still going to get a job in three years. The deans and the leaders of various law schools, they were there 10 years ago. They, they remember that experience. So they can shift there. But I think that in general, law school administrators and higher ed administrators in general tend to be conservative. So and not politically so, but just conservative in the sense of things move glacially. Changes happen glacially. I find it hard to believe that an admissions committee staffed mostly by faculty all of a sudden are just not going to care at all about the LSAT and the GPA. And that even if they admit more students who are a little bit lower statistically but have amazing resumes, that their enrollment manager, their dean of admissions, also won't say, hey, that's cool. We've admitted 20 of these students. And last year we admitted like 10. Yay, pat yourselves on the back. But that means that if we want to maintain our medians, we now need to balance them out. How do we all feel about this. I'm guessing the faculty on the admissions committee will say, yep, looks like we need to balance it out a little bit. I I think I'm idealistic. I'm hopeful that this will give a greater boost to the resume, but I also want to see it in action. That's my cynicism coming in, or perhaps not cynicism, but just experience working with law school administrators. Because I think there are different points, right? Like admissions is one thing. You've got three years to make that kid employable if he's not that employable when he gets there. So it's not, I don't think the door doesn't shut on that kid when they, you know, when they step through the doors. You've got a long time. Oh, totally not. And that's always actually a line I would give to some faculty who are like, well, are they employable or, you know, are they going to interview well? My response was, we have time to work on that. Yeah, exactly. I think, and I think you're volunteering <laughs> to lead that student's prep for clerkship interviews and what have you. And speaking of higher ed, we also got a couple questions about grade inflation, which is a, a big topic on the law school admissions subreddit, and it's just higher ed in general. So also from Swarley1999, do we expect grade inflation to continue? And if so, do you think there will be drawbacks for splitter applicants with lower GPAs who decide to wait a cycle or two to apply? And just as a brief point of, of definition, for those who may not know, a splitter is someone whose stats are splitting a school's medians. You're high on the LSAT, low on the GPA, or the reverse. You have a high GPA and a low LSAT. So step one, do we think grade inflation will continue? Have we seen grade inflation? I mean, I, I think that's a pretty obvious one. COVID was a rough time. What can we say? It does seem like professors and law school, er, professors and universities were more willing to hand out higher grades for a year or two. And because of that, there's going to be quite the bubble of high GPAs for the next couple of years, probably. Is that fair to say, Aaron and Brigitta? Well, also the medians. I, I wasn't sure if they were talking about grade inflation in undergrad or the inflation of the GPA median, because I do think that's going up and is so high right now. And, and I think those are one and the same. Yeah, because you can you can only have those stats if the the stats exist. And what where I would go with that is if if you're already below median with a GPA, is it going to change that much 
that, you know, you're still going to be a below median, right? But it's harder for that kid who's 3.87 now, and the, and the median is 3.81, right? And then in two years, maybe that, but I, I don't, you know, so that, that would be more my question mark. If you're a 3.5 in two years, you're 3.5, I, I don't think it's going to matter that much. You know, if you have the 174 with a 164, that's going to be what, what kind of determines your range. Oh, totally, totally. It's crazy. So this is, we're recording this in August, and this is the time of year when schools start publishing their class profiles. And, oh, Texas A&M, I think their median GPA for this year's enrolling class is a 3.97. So we'll, we'll just let that sit out there, wow. that half the wow. class is at a 3.97 or higher. But I was struck because some of the T14s who've already published their stats, they, they basically maintained their LSAT and their GPA went up just a touch, maybe two one hundredths of a point. But it's pretty normal now for the T14s to have a 171 median LSAT and a 388-39 median GPA. And you're then seeing the schools like USC and Notre Dame have 169 LSATs and 385 GPAs. And guys, like a 169 and a 385, that was the median at Duke at Northwestern in 2019, like just pre-pandemic. So that's a big shift in just four years to see that. Have I given my plug on on some admissions reform ideas here? I think I might have in a previous <laughs> episode, but I mean, don't you think do. it is ridiculous? I mean, a 3.9 whatever is absolutely absurd because it does skew things to the folks who have the high GPAs, maybe over other skills. Maybe not. Not that it's bad to have a 3.93. Of course, those people worked hard. They shouldn't be penalized for it. But is that really what we want? Are people who looked for the GPA above anything else? Probably not. So how do you how do you change that? You just have certain categories. If you're a 3.8 and above, you know, you're in the highest category and you and a school can't and, and won't be jostling around trying to trying to get extra brownie points, you know, on rankings based off that. That's what I would do. I don't know. There's got to be something we can do because it does not make sense that your median is a 3.93. And again, at the end of the day, the schools can only do these are the applicants we received, you know, and we wanted to enroll the best class. And heck, what are we supposed to do about this? What what they can do is say, like you said, there's no substantive difference between a student with a 3.8 and a 3.9, just like there's no substantive difference between a 169 and a 171. These are students who are going to succeed academically in your environment. Now, what else do they provide? But that would require a maturity and or a willingness to just let the ranking be whatever it is, which frankly, I'm convinced it would be whatever it is without you trying to massage the borders of, of your stats. You'd have to be willing to go with that. You'd have to have real strong leadership at both the law school level and the university level to say, we don't care. We're going to be ourselves. These are people who are going to contribute and the stats are going to be what they're going to be. I would love to meet that dean someday. That'd be a cool meeting. Well, I, I do think that does actually happen lower down where they, there is that flexibility just because they're not trying to maintain that. And, and ultimately, sometimes that ends up, you know, they can enroll really great students who just happen to not be perfection when it comes to certain things, you know, so that's, that's a good thing. Who among us is perfect, right? And I think we can do some quick hitters here because we have a number of questions about letters of recommendation. And, and a lot of these answers are going to be pretty quick. So let's go with the first one. Insert name here, Seven asked, because of the changes in ranking methodology that emphasize employment, do you think that professional letters of rec will be more important or better to submit the cycle? What do we think? You just need an enthusiastic letter, but I think it does also depend on how long you've been out of school. I'm not sure that the ranking methodology really matters here, given that the letters themselves don't matter enormously. Oh, Aaron, opening up that, that can <laughs> of worms. So actually, let's, here we go. Let's go to Harley Jarvis 2024, who had a more general question. Advice on choosing letter writers. 
for our audience, Aaron actually grew up in an academic environment. You, you basically grew up on a college campus. So you've known professors and you know this, this whole deal. Aaron, how important are letters of recommendation and how do professors actually approach them? Because I think that, that that touches on this question a little bit. Well, I think we can offer just a lot of reassurance about this. Like first, letters of recommendation are not hugely important. We talked about that in a previous podcast, right? If you have a great letter, great. Most people do. If you somehow have a bad letter, that's bad, obviously. But just, you know, in picking someone who knows you and feels reasonably positively about you, you can make sure that you don't have a bad one. The thing to know is just that letters of recommendation are part of a professor's job. And they know that. They think of it as part of their job. They're happy to provide you with a letter. If it's someone who you are worried doesn't quite remember you, don't don't immediately discount that. Try to, you know, maybe reach out, ask what they might need from you, remind them who you are, send them a paper you wrote for them, something like that. And they'll be they'll be happy to, to gather the info and, and write a nice letter. But also remember that a graduate student that you had a good relationship with is a great person to write a letter. And it, the title doesn't matter so much as their ability to speak to direct experience with you. You know, I, I, I don't know. I just, you just don't have to worry very much about it. We have <laughs> so many questions about it, don't we? How do you choose with based on this context? Who do you think could be who do you think can be enthusiastic and provide the best insight into what you bring to the classroom experience? And it can be a, a combo of academic and employer. I think it's great to have a combo. And the, my favorite was, unless you've been out for a long time, my favorite is two academic, one employer, or just even one and one can be really great because they do write very differently and they write very differently about you and about your skills. It highlights a different aspect of who you are. So I, I think one and one or two and one is, is really great. We have a, hang on, I just noticed we have an interesting, there's an interesting coda to one of these questions, which is that somebody has... <laughs> It's two different organizations. Yeah, two different organizations. So they have two bosses, but the bosses are husband and wife. Oh, so. yeah. I would just not mention that. I How like about that. that? How about not mention it? it? Hopefully they don't have the same last name, but even if they do. And if they do, yeah. as long as it's generic, you know, a, a Davis, a Johnson, etc. I don't think <laughs> we'd notice that. Would it be a problem if you did notice? I don't think so. Because you would look, oh, we worked at both places at the same time. I don't think I don't think anybody would particularly care. But I don't think I would I don't think I would talk about it and try to justify it. I think I would just leave it. <laughs> exactly. Making sure we're returning to this question of especially for this cycle, is it better to have professional letters or not? I think in general, if you were going to submit one in the past, like Brigitte, like you said, if you have some work experience and it was going to be two academic letters and one professional letter, that should still be your plan for this year. I don't think the professional letter is going to have any more weight this year than in the past, necessarily. And they have had weight in the past. So if you were working at a law firm, for example, and the, the lawyer that you're supporting or working for writes a fantastic letter about how they can't wait for you to graduate so they can hire you back, that's great. That was great last year. That was great five years ago. That's still going to be great coming in the, the coming admission cycle. Okay, so Brigitte, and then one question for you from Federal Building 9628. Do admissions officers care if a recommender shares their letter with you and marks it non-confidential, even if an applicant waiver think they mean waived, waive their right to see the letter? What do you think? To me, this is a little bit tricky, but I've never seen it. I've never seen a letter marked non-confidential. So I, I, my gut would be don't do it. I don't know the, the tricky ins and outs of whether it's even possible to do that, but I've never seen it. I, I always encourage my, my applicants to, to waive the right to see it and for it to be confidential. They haven't seen the last version. Yes, sometimes people offer earlier versions. I guess that's fine. It, but in the real world, the way it really should be is you, you have never seen the letter. We understand in the real world, sometimes they want some input. Okay, but give them a little input, send it back to them. Them, have them make their final version, and then you can legitimately say you've not seen it. But marking it non-confidential, I think is a bad idea. What do you think, Jake? Yeah, because I think that just 
raises my eyebrow and raises more questions like why is it not confidential and, and occasionally i do see this conversation on on reddit over the, the last couple of years like should i ask for to see a copy of that letter i'm worried and i wish i could see a copy of that letter guys i would encourage you that once you make the request to your faculty or your recommender and they say yes that you just step back okay and assume like aaron said they are going to do their job and part of their job is to write quality letters of recommendation for their students or for their employees and just don't worry about it so don't try to be involved and trust that they're going to handle it just fine that's how i encourage students to approach this so yeah if i saw a non-confidential I, I would raise an eyebrow and wonder about that so yeah just avoid that avoid that we have a question here about military service and, and veterans so from Nick3193, do certain schools value military service more than others? If so, which ones? And also, thanks so much for the opportunity to ask these questions. No, thank you, Nick3193. <laughs> You're a cool that's one. A, that's a straight shooter, gracious, <laughs> polite. No kidding. Well, no, I always love, so it seemed like a disproportionate number of the active military and veterans that I worked with would sign their emails very respectfully, comma, like, yeah. Now I feel it. like I feel it. like an adult now. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, so hey, Brigitte, you want to touch on that one? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think we our advice here is the end all be all, but I do think there are schools that particularly value military service, and just generally schools value it because you are employable, you have a, you know a good sense of rules and laws and being, you know, have a job, keep a job, be respectful to the boss, etc. So I think they are good, strong candidates. I know that UVA at the time when I worked there we had a particular maybe thumb on the scale for, for military vets. I think other schools too do too, excuse me. I don't know that I can list one, ones that do, but I, I do get the sense that it is something that's valued. I sometimes get the feeling that schools that enroll a larger incoming class and aren't as quite as dependent on enrolling high number students to maintain their median have more flexibility and that people who have a really obvious, you know, something, you know, military service is so obviously a mark in somebody's favor. I don't know, like for Harvard, for example, as against like another top ranked school with a smaller class, I've seen just, I've seen vets outperform at Harvard more often than not. Yeah. And then there are lower ranked schools too that, that have like almost really good programs to help vets prepare for and get into law school. Because sometimes just the nature of the job, you're not in the same university. Sometimes your grades are bad because you weren't a ship for six months, or there are lots of reasons why you're not maybe going to present numbers wise in the same way. And yet they're willing to give a boost or a bump to that. And unfortunately, this is not something that's reported to the ABA, either for, you know, incoming student purposes or for postgrad employment. There aren't going to be any hard numbers out there to show veteran status or active military status at any law school. But one way that you can kind of get a sense of this is, do they have a military law students association or a veterans law students association? You can look for most schools' student organizations on their website. These are active actively advertised additionally check out to see what their yellow ribbon policy is so if it's a pretty normal and generous yellow ribbon policy that can give you a sense that this is a school that is really welcoming and inviting to veterans okay so hey guys i think this is a good place to stop since we've been recording for almost an hour so we'll conclude with that question next time we're actually going to go into a number of questions 
about being an international student, T14 admissions chances, anxiety, resume questions, and things like that. So thanks, Brigitte and Aaron, for joining on this part of the podcast. We'll welcome back for part two. And we also thank you, our audience. We hope that you enjoyed this first part of our subreddit podcast and AMA. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform and join us next time as we keep diving into the ins and outs of applying to law school on this, the Seventh Sage Admissions Podcast. If you're interested in more help and guidance for getting into law school, also check out our website at sevensage.com. That's the number seven, S-A-G-E.com. You can learn more about our LSAT course and tutoring, as well as the work that our professional admissions and writing consultants can do to help you with your applications. You can even schedule a free consultation with our LSAT tutors and with our admissions consultants.